Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of For What It's Worth. I've been on the road now for about three weeks, and uh, I was in New Mexico, I was in Texas, I was in Nevada, and I didn't do much of anything content-wise while I was on the road because I was just too busy. Some of it was self-inflicted, uh, just personal things, which I'm going to talk about, and then others were work, and and work is, is uh, overloading at times. Um, again, self-inflicted because I've, I'm agreeing to do things and projects that I think are very worthwhile, not necessarily for me, but for other people. That's the key, which is something I'm going to talk about here in a second. I almost said for what it's worth three, but apparently I've already done three episodes. So we are talking about number four. I have five topics I want to talk about today. The first is really exciting, and it's actually part of the reason why I've been so busy. So no new uh, motion sequences, no new vlogs, no new for what it's worth until now because uh, I've been working on some other things. So I just wanted to make an official announcement uh, of a new collaboration. I've hinted about this a little bit over the past couple of weeks, but um, I just want to give you some more details about it. So about a year ago, I was approached through a mutual friend by uh, someone named Rick Elder, who's the director of a clothing company called Beyond, which is based up in Seattle. And um, I didn't know much about Beyond before I met Rick and uh, did a little investigation into the into the clothing line by going to their website, basically, and checking it out. And I thought, well, this looks really cool. Layering system for super cold weather environments, etc. Went to the site, looked at the clothing, and thought, wow, this is really interesting. But most of the time over the last... 10 years or so, when I talk about collaborations, I'm the one who's getting the ball rolling. I find someone else I like, I go to them, I, I pitch them on it, I say, look, you may know me, you may not know me, I'd lo- I love your work, I want to do this collaboration, what do you think? So it's rare when someone comes to me and says, hey, and pitches me on something, which is exactly what Rick did. He said, hey, you and me, meaning Blurb and Beyond, we should do a co-branded biannual zine. And if for those of you who don't know, a zine is what I'll call an informal sort of underground magazine. The zine environment is exploding in the last five years, but that's another story. And Rick said, hey, you and I should do this co-branded zine twice a year, and we should just print the stories that we think are interesting and important. That's it. That's the only stipulation. We're not trying to make money. We're not trying to sell this thing, and we're not selling advertising. None of that. We're just doing a co-branded zine that basically at its core is about promoting understanding through art and dialogue. That's the goal. That's the entire mission. Now, when he said this to me, I did exactly one thing, nothing. I waited to see what would happen because I figured if he was serious, he would come back to me. And if he wasn't serious, I would never hear about it again. Because again, I hear, you know, ideas are being thrown around all the time. Now, I didn't really know Rick at that point, knowing what I know now. I should not be surprised that he was not only came back to me, but came back to me in very short order and said, you and I, we are doing this. We are moving forward. This is going to happen. And consequently, that's where we are. Now, the zine is titled AG23, and it's a real thing now. It's a real entity. So I just spent some time in Las Vegas with the Beyond team and their their creative team, who's awesome. A bunch of different people mixed in there from different angles and different backgrounds. And we talked about what it is we're doing. So the logo has been created. It's been trademarked. The URLs have been purchased. The microsite is being built. We know what we're printing, which is a 60-page, 6 by 9 trade book, soft cover with a matte cover. So a very basic product. This is not a precious item. This is not a photography book. This is not something that you lay on your coffee table and tell your friends not to touch it after they've been eating chicken wings. 
this simply is a catalyst. The, the zine itself, in our, is in our best case scenario, works as a catalyst for you to understand and learn about things that we think are either important, strategic, or beautiful. So, for example, we run a story in there that could be a single page, could be a single photograph with a little tiny copy block, and at the bottom there's a QR code. And when you scan your iPhone over that QR code, it's going to link you out to the microsite. And you're going to be able to learn about, more importantly, you're going to be able to get a little bit more flushed out version of that story, but then you're also going to be taken to the creator of that story, whether that's a photographer or a writer or an explorer or an athlete or whatever. The rule that we have about content is that there are no rules. So this is not a branded magazine that's supposed to make Beyond look good or Blurb look good. These companies are involved, but they're very, very, very much in the background. This is about content that we think, stories that we think are interesting. And Rick and I are the editors. We're not here to tell you how to think. We're not here to tell you what to believe. We are just simply putting things and people in front of you that we think you should know about. And we also think that the people who end up in the zine should know about each other. And really the idea also is to amplify or magnify the messages of what these people are doing. So conceivably you could have a cause-based story right next to a story that, ju that simply just shows off someone's work that we think is interesting or beautiful or important or tied to us in some way, shape, or form. So... AG23 is real. This is coming, and there will eventually be a submission portal on the website because we want to open it up to far more people than Rick and I know, far more subject matter and projects and stories because there's a lot of people out there doing amazing work that we may or may not know about. So in essence, that's the first part of uh, for what it's worth today is I just wanted to, to show you this. I'm going to include some photographs on this uh, blog post that are going to show you what some of the AG23 stuff looked like at the event that just happened in Las Vegas where I was hanging out with the Beyond team. So this there's going to be much, much more about this. This is going to be an ongoing thing for me over the next year, so you're going to be able to probably see a lot of different kinds of content that I wouldn't normally have. I'm going to be introduced to a bunch of people I wouldn't normally have been in contact with. So I've already spent time with endangered species activists. I've spent time with some of the explorers that Beyond sponsor uh, a professional climber out of out of Dallas that I was able to sp uh, spend time with Mario Stanley. He was very interesting. I'm hoping to interview these people and do dispatches, get get background on them, get stories on them, and just really diversify. The reason I wanted to do this project, which by the way will end up being a mountain of work, it will dominate uh, our lives for for portions of the immediate future. And there's an upside and a downside to that. With all the things that we have going on, at times it can feel overwhelming. But the reason I wanted to do this is, is basically a pretty simple reason. It's different. It's completely different. On the surface, Beyond and Blurb have nothing in, nothing in common. You have a clothing company and a publishing company. Very different styles. Very different brands. Rick and I are from two very different backgrounds. We probably have very different beliefs on a lot of different subject matter. It doesn't matter. To me, that was what made it so interesting is that on the surface, you would say, why would you do that? And that's enough reason for me right there. So stay tuned. Much more on that in, in the future. Okay, the second point of today's for what it's worth is I wanted to talk about the trail run I just did in Big Bend. So for those of you who don't know, uh, I don't run for the most part. I used to run when I was in elementary school and middle school. I was somewhat of a, sh of a very brief track star. I set a lot of school records in distance running when I was younger. I grew up, uh, I'd spend summers in Wyoming at 8,000 feet and then come back to Texas and run, and I felt like I had all the air in the world. But I frankly had not run since that time, like high school. 
So decades have gone by. I don't run. My brother is an Ironman triathlete. He does a lot of running, a lot of cycling, a lot of swimming, obviously. He's in good shape. And he called me and said, hey, I'm going to do this 50K trail run in Big Bend. You should sign up and do the 30K. And I was literally not paying attention. I went straight to the site. I clicked on the 30K. I signed up and forgot about it. Now, you would think the best case scenario would be to do some training. And after doing this race, I would highly recommend that one trains before trying to do this. But I, frankly, did not have a lot of time for training. And then in the weeks prior, I ended up in New Mexico where it was like 10 degrees and snowing, and I'm just not able to train in that kind of weather. I also pulled my left calf, so I was even more limited, and I just said, you know what, I'm going in blind. So I did this race, and the the point I want to make about this race is just signing up and committing to something like this is a benefit that I hadn't really thought about. And people tell me or ask me all the time about traveling and how you go do projects and how you find time or you do this and that. And I always tell people, if you buy the tickets, you'll go. So if you want to go to South Africa and you've always dreamed of going to South Africa and you keep procrastinating and for some reason you always find a reason not to go, just buy the airline tickets. If you buy the tickets, to use a Hunter Thompson phrase, buy the ticket, take the ride. If you buy those tickets, you will go. And so Signing up for this race forced me to confront some demons um, that I was not really prepared to, to confront. Number one, not being in shape. Number two, not training. Number three, not really. Sh- I've never done 19 miles ever in my lifetime. And I had just turned 50. So I thought, this might go well, or I might die out there. So I didn't really think about it until it was sunrise, standing in a 32 degree parking lot at the edge of Big Bend State Park thinking, oh my God, I actually have to do this. Now, the funny part is if you lined up all the participants in the 30K and you put them like a police backdrop and you said, who do you think would do well? You might have picked me out of that lineup. I look fairly like I'm in shape. I kind of was dressed the part, I guess you could say, but I got smoked and I got smoked. I finished, I would say, in the top half of the bottom third. I got passed by people that I could not believe were passing me. There were people that I would say were 30 pounds overweight. There was one guy who looked like he'd had a hip replacement two days before. He was kind of walking in this weird shuffle. And when the race started and we all took off, we were all running. And people were kind of, in my opinion, they were kind of flying. And I was kind of clinging towards the rear of the pack. And I was looking at these people and I thought, oh, I'm going to pick you off one at a time. I'm going to just like white shark you this whole time. I'm going to be slowly out there gaining on you, gaining on you. You could cue the music for, for Jaws. I didn't pass any of these people. I never saw them again. I got passed by people who were doing the 50K. And I even got passed by two guys who were doing the 50-mile run. Just think about that for a second. Before I could finish 30K, two guys who were doing the 50-mile race passed me, both of whom were running so fast that my first thought was, I don't think I could run that fast on flat ground for any length of time. They were, they were literally bombing this course at full speed for 50 miles. Anyway, impressive. My point is, sign up for something. Sign up for a 5K, a 10K, a swimming event, a walking event, anything, beach volleyball, whatever it is, it makes all the difference in the world. Because now, I'm going back next year. I've already made the decision. I'm going back, and I am going to train, and I am going to... I'm going to haul ass next year because one, it's a beautiful, beautiful course. And I got out there and I just felt like, man, I cannot give this my all because my body's breaking down. My knees were killing me. And I thought I can't, there were times where I thought I can't run. Now, the last thing I'm going to say, which is really funny is the last quarter mile 
of the race was, was on pavement heading back towards the starting line. And as I came off the trail, I, it was all I could do to keep moving. I was so tired and so wasted. And I hit the pavement and I thought, that's it. I can see the finish line. I will crawl if I have to. And all of a sudden I look down the road and there's a crowd of people cheering. And my first thought was, ah, shit, I have to run this last quarter mile. And my brain said to my legs, run. And it, but nothing happened. And I literally, my arms were moving and my feet were like shuffling and dragging. And I was like, that's it. That's all I have left. And as just before I crossed the finish line, I looked over. There had to be an 80-year-old woman who looked at me and said, pick it up, man. And I was like, that's it. I got nothing left. And then I crossed the finish line. I stopped approximately a half inch over the finish line and just stood there trying to like summon some reserve of strength, had some food. And then my nephew who did the 10K, we started walking to my truck and he just like took off. And I said, man, you're going to have to slow down. I don't know if I can get to the truck. I don't know if I can climb in the truck. Oof, it was bad, but totally worth it in the long run. My advice to you is to sign up. Okay, point number three, moving on. I wanted to talk a little bit about the New Orleans Saints football game, which I ended up watching right after the trail race. Okay, so just to give you a little background, I've been a New Orleans Saints fan since the mid-'80s. When I lived in Texas, I was in middle school. We had moved there from another state, and I heard this term, America's team, about the Dallas Cowboys. It rubbed me the wrong way. I said, wait a minute, I'm an American. They're not my team. I don't like the Cowboys. And so I looked around for a new team. Now, again, I was in middle school. I looked at the Saints, and I loved their uniform, the Florida Lee and, I, and the black and the black and gold, and I thought, that's a cool-looking team. I'm taking New Orleans. Now, back then, the Saints were a disaster. They were, they've been a disaster for long stretches of their existence. And I remember my brother saying to me, you know, you might want to choose another team. And I said, nope, I'm a Saints fan, and I'm all in. So from, let's say, 1984 on, I've been a Saints fan. So we're watching this game. We're in Terlingua in the hotel. And we're watching this game, and this no-call happens with New Orleans. Now, my brother, who's a Bears fan, and my nephew, who's a Packer fan, uh, my nephew says nothing, but my brother is like, oh, my God, this is a travesty. I cannot believe this. That's the worst call in the history of the NFL. You know, and he's talking, and then announcers are basically the, saying the same thing. Some of them are. Some of the announcers are already trying to gloss over because the network is going to chew them out if, they, if they're too honest about a situation like this. Frankly, I was not that bothered because I'm so used to these things happening to New Orleans that I'm completely jaded by the fact that this happened. So if you go back to things, you know, the NFL did a story 15 years ago called the most dysfunctional team in the NFL and it was about the Saints. The Saints have blown games in a myriad of ways that are just almost impossible to understand. And then if you go back to Bounty Gate, when the beginning of this whole concussion situation was happening with the NFL and Goodell stepped in and penalized New Orleans under something called the Bounty Gate and basically destroyed the team for two years. Well, after the fact, after the media had moved on, Paul Tagliabue, who was also a former commissioner, came in and studied that case and basically said, this is a bunch of crap. There's no evidence here. And basically said that this this doesn't hold water. And the league did it to the Saints because they were trying to look tough on concussions because this was before the settlement, the concussion settlement came out. But there's all kinds of weird things. So yes, there was a no call. That was a massively blown call. There are a couple of things that stand out to me. There's obviously, they're never going to go back and replay this game. Everyone's moved on. Uh, the fact that this, that everyone in the world saw that call except for the referees is puzzling. The fact that there's no replay on that is puzzling. The whole thing is just bewildering. And then for Goodell to stay silent this long tells you that 
there's something weird happening. And then earlier today, a story came out that four of the referees, including all of the people that missed the call, were referees who were based in Southern California, which is where the Rams are based. And the, the, the experts have said that is a major, major no-no. That should have never happened. And again, the league has said nothing. They've done nothing, whatever. People have moved on. I'm sure that the Los Angeles market is an amazing TV market for the league and probably would have been more profitable than had the Saints made it. So uh, that was a very strange thing. To me, there is no Super Bowl this year after that happened. I think the whole thing, either team that wins has an asterisk next to their, next to their win. Because even if the Patriots win, they beat a team that shouldn't have been there. And if the Rams win, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. So the whole thing has kind of turned me off to the NFL. I, I was drifting away from the NFL for a long time. This was the final straw to me, which is not only did it happen, and there was no replay, no way to correct it, but the league has done so little after the fact. And the fact that we have still not heard from Roger Goodell just tells me that they don't care. I mean, his primary task is to make money for the owners, which is why he's continued to have that job. And he's done a great job at making money for the owners. But the rest of the fans and the cities and the teams and the players and the players' health and everything else, as we all know now, is secondary to, uh, to profitability. So and if, anyway, I'm sort of sour on the NFL. This latest thing with the Saints, again, I was not shocked. I was like, yep, it's the Saints. It happens all the time. Okay, this next point uh, is the fourth point, and this is, Totally unrelated to anything we talked about before, but I just find this situation occurring over and over again, and I wanted to bring it up, which is I'm around a lot of photographers, and I'm around a lot of photographers who want to make books. And photographers will go and spend months, years, decades studying, practicing photography. They realize that making great photography is incredibly difficult. It can take you years to figure out how to do it well, and it's, and it's even more difficult to make it consistently. But they'll dedicate decades of their lives and practice tens of thousands of times to try to get where they want to be with photography. Now, when it comes to making books, a lot of photographers, for some reason, assume and expect their very first book to be perfect. So they've never done a layout. They've maybe never even edited and sequenced for a book, never done a layout, never chosen typography, never done any kind of practice with design, maybe even never used the software before, never calibrated, never used a profile, all of these ingredients, and yet they think that first book is going to be perfect. And when it isn't perfect, they start looking for people to blame. Could be the software, could be the publishing company, could be the printer, could be, I mean, it is, it is very peculiar. This happens all the time where people have said, I've, I've spent 30 years as a photographer, but I, I've never made a book, but you know, this should have been perfect. Well, it doesn't work that way. Bookmaking is just like photography. You've got to practice. If I go back to the very beginning of bookmaking and I look at the software I was using, I look at my design skills, my knowledge of typography, using profiles, calibrating, everything has changed a thousand times just like photography. The software I'm using now is not the same. The knowledge level is not the same. If you have not made a book before, do yourself a favor. Do not expect perfection because you'll never be happy. It's never going to happen. Just enjoy the process and realize that your bookmaking requires just as much knowledge as your photography does. And, and really, the two of them working in sync is a beautiful thing. Um, I think it was Jerry Badger who said, uh, photography is a story best told in book form. And I think that that's absolutely 100% true. That's a brilliant statement. Um, but man, does it take practice. Just typography alone. Just editing and designing a cover. Typography 
what size, what style, what density, uh, what, what images do you use, at what size, what placement, dealing with the gutter, borders, um, using a grid, all of these different things that take skill. So for whatever reason, there's a reluctance to think about it this way, but my job is, is, is to remind you that that is the reality. So keep that in mind. Okay, the last point of today's episode I think is really important, and there's been some events in my life in the past couple of days that uh, are directly impacted or related to this. Someone asked me, I think it was Thorsten, asked me, and I might be pronouncing your name wrong. If so, I'm sorry. Uh, I do better with, you know, the basic American names like Bob and Dave, Bill, Henry, Hank, whatever. Um, he was asking about my situation with Lyme. Like, what's an update on my Lyme disease situation? And this could not come at a better time because there's all kinds of weird stuff happening with Lyme disease in the U.S., both weird in a good way and weird in a bad way. So for those of you who don't know, I got Lyme about five years ago. I, I uh, had been in Western Australia. I'd been in New Mexico, California, and New England. I'm not sure where I got it. Uh, everyone, when I give that list to people, they say, well, you obviously got it in New England. The problem with that part of it is if I would have gotten it in New England, it would have had to have happened on the first day that I was there because I started feeling symptoms the first day I was in New England, and it makes me believe I got it from somewhere else. I did not have a recognizable tick bite. I did not know that I was bitten. I just started to feel the first thing I felt was um, I lost my vision. I could no, I no longer had anything in focus at any distance, and my wife had to drive the car because I couldn't see. That's a wee bit disconcerting. Then I started to have cognitive issues, uh, memory, memory problems, fogginess, uh, you know, walking through the hotel, like what the hell is happening? I felt like my head was underwater. And then within a couple of days, just an unbelievable level of fatigue, uh, something that I cannot describe accurately. It's something you kind of have to be in the middle of where I suddenly went from a normal life to sleeping 20 hours a day and still not feeling refreshed, you know, and I just could not figure out what was happening. I went through three months of misdiagnoses from multiple doctors. I was lied to. I was threatened. I was forced to leave offices. And that's when I began to realize that I was in the middle of something that was far greater than me. Um, I realized that I had a disease that was not popular with the pharmaceutical industry. It was not popular with the insurance industries and that the doctors I was seeing were directly tied to these two organizations. They were being controlled and, uh, I had a disease that they did not want to deal with. So now fast forwarding to this time, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. I've come out the other side of Lyme. A lot of people don't get that oppor opportunity. They never uh, completely get over it. I don't think I'll ever be completely over it, but I'm much better than I was. I have not committed suicide, and I'm not using that as a joke. There's the suicide rates in Lyme patients is, are, are pretty high. Um, but the update uh, a few months ago, I, I featured a book on this site called Lab 257, which was about Plum Island, New York, and the weaponization of ticks by the U.S. military after World War II with the help of Nazi uh, biological weapons doctors that the State Department had brought back to the U.S., something called Operation Paperclip. Now, when I first got Lyme, someone sent me an email that was 25 pages long. It was a kid in Northern California who I didn't know, and he said, you might want to read this. Now, I read the first page, and I said, there's no possible way this went down. This is conspiracy theory, and I deleted it. Then I found Lab 257. Then I found out about Operation Paperclip. There's a new book coming out. I don't remember the author's name. It's called Bitten, which is also detailing the connection between Lyme disease and biological weapons. When you dive into this story, it is remarkable what went down. And the reason why these things, this is just my opinion, the reason why these things are able to happen is that Americans 
for the most part, in many cases, still live under the ideals of the America of the 1950s, that we think, you know, post-war, we're the good guys, you know, we do the right thing, we aren't corrupt, we aren't, you know, these kind of things wouldn't be happening. Even when I got Lyme disease and I was misdiagnosed and I was thrown out of different medical facilities, I had close friends say, that would never happen. Oh, you have to be making that up. Oh, you have to be exaggerating. That would never happen. And that that is so disheartening as a Lyme patient when you're the people closest to you are like, mm, we just don't believe that would happen. Because then the question is always, why? Why would they misdiagnose you with five, di- five diseases in a 10-minute window, all things they tested you for, all things which you tested negative for? Why would they tell you you have those? And then when you say, you know, I think I have Lyme disease, and they throw you out of the facility, why would that happen? And there's a, there's a lot of reasons. The insurance I mentioned before, the pharmaceutical angle I mentioned before, and then the biological weapons angle um, that I'm, I'm always hesitate, hesitant to mention because I don't want to immediately turn people off by saying, oh, this guy's a conspiracy theorist. But there is a lot of data out there. Lyme has spread since I got it. So even in the last five years, the winters are not killing off the ticks like they did. Lyme is now in all 50 states, and it's in many, many, many countries around the world. Uh, There are also a myriad of co-infections that you can get when you get a tick bite. Ticks carry up to different 50 different vector-borne diseases. And Lyme is a bacteria, not a virus, for those of you wondering. There's no cure. So that's, you know, hypothetically, I have Lyme bacteria in my body for the rest of my life. It has more DNA than any bacteria they've found. It's incredibly resilient. It's incredibly hard to get to get rid of. And the tricky part about it is that your Lyme experience is as unique as your fingerprint. So what strain did you get? What co-infections did you get? How long was it before you were diagnosed? What is your immune system like? What other diseases have you had? What protocols are you on to get over this? Are you taking a single antibiotic, multiple antibiotic? Are you taking oral? Are you doing a pick line and doing pulsing uh, directly into your heart? Uh, are you doing any kind of natural path things? What it, has your diet changed? What other IVs and supplements are you doing? All of these things form a mathematical equation that is pretty much unique to you. Uh, and the protocols I've spoken to with other Lyme patients are, are, are remarkable. What I've realized is the thing that I have to offer is that I have come out on the other side, right? So the fact that I did a 30K trail run two weeks ago, um, I talked to a lot of Lyme patients and they're like, how on earth is it possible that you can do that? And when I was in Las Vegas, I saw an old friend and he said to me, you know, when you were telling us you were sick and then we would see you like cycling or hiking or whatever, we were kind of like, well, wait a minute, is he sick or is he not sick? And I completely understand why he would say that. But here's the thing. So I could not stand to not do something. So if you go back, for the first two years of having Lyme, I was incredibly sick. I was what I would call functional, but that's it. I was just functional. I could do my job. I could get through the day, but there was no cycling, no hiking, no running, no nothing. I was, it was bad. And people would walk into my house, and I could see the look on their face, and I could see the alarm on their face word spread and some of my friends that I was dying. One friend came over and said, are you wearing black eyeliner? Because I had such dark circles under my eyes. That was two years of my life. Then the subsequent two, so four years total, but the following two, I was just above functional. So that's when I started to like cycle and hike and not run, but I was just, you know, fly fish, whatever. 
But the problem was I would do it and I'd feel good that day and then I would crash hard for two or three days as my body like was just not able to handle the physical exercise, but I couldn't stop myself. That's also when I started, really started seriously doing yoga again every day. And yoga was a stopgap. Yoga was me saying, I have to do something. I can't just sit here. I'm deteriorating. And I have a, I have a tendency to lose weight if I don't work out and eat tons of food. I drop weight fast. I lost five pounds in the last week just by not doing, working out and eating like I normally do. So I had four years of down, four years of lost time in my life. And the fifth year was when things really started to turn, and they started to turn for a variety of reasons. Good protocols, finding a great doctor, DNA testing me for Lyme, finding out I had Bartonella, which is a co-infection, curing the Bartonella, getting on IV protocols, and then really bearing down on diet was huge. You know, no sugar, dairy, gluten, alcohol, corn, and, and trying to mentally get my head around uh, what was helping me. My goal in life now with Lyme is to help other people. And ideally, I'd love to get my yoga certificate for, for teaching yoga, and I want to specifically teach Lyme patients. That would be my primary goal. And, uh, and also to share whatever knowledge I have with people who are in the midst of it, because people, it is bad. It is a full-blown epidemic. It's the fastest-growing vector-borne disease in the world. I guarantee you know people that have it. I guarantee you know people who have it who have been misdiagnosed who don't know they have it. I think there's people dying of MS that are having MS-related issues that actually have Lyme. This is, they call Lyme the great mimic, and it mimics 100 different diseases. It's bad. The ticks are microscopic. They're hard to detect. Um, people ask me about New England, and I go to Maine every summer, and I tell them I do not touch anything green while I'm in Maine. I don't walk on the grass. I don't sit on the grass. I don't walk in the woods. If I'm going to the beach and there's a path that has greenery versus a path that's open, I, I don't care how far away the path that's open is. I go there. I tell the people that I'm with, I don't care if you think I'm overreacting. I lost five years of my life. You didn't. And I swear, every, every summer in Maine, this last year, the night before we were leaving, someone came up and said, oh, yep, just pulled a tick off my neck this morning and we're sending it in. Um, I've heard that that tick from that person had three diseases, had Powassan, Lyme, and something else. So they're in treatment right now. Uh, it's bad, people. So um, thanks to... I want to say Thorsten, and again, if I'm getting your name wrong, I apologize. I wanted to thank you for, for suggesting I give an update on my condition. I am good. I am a lucky one. I am coming out of it, uh, and I feel lucky. That's not to say I can't relapse, but I'm doing whatever I can to try to postpone that or uh, keep that from ever happening again. But anyone out there that needs advice or help or just wants to talk to someone about Lyme, I am the guy. My only piece of advice to you is do not get it. Give yourself a tick check anytime you go out. Tick checks can be both embarrassing and fun and maybe even sexy depending on who gives you the tick check. As a kid in Wyoming, this happened at the end of every day. You stripped down to your underwear and a willing family member uh, went over you with a fine-tooth comb looking for – the, the ticks we had in Wyoming as a kid were giant. They were like the size of an eraser. They were hard to miss. These black-legged deer ticks that carry Lyme now are microscopic. They're very small. They look like a freckle. That's why I think a lot of people that get Lyme don't remember having a tick bite because they're so small they don't see it, and then they might feel something, and they scratch and rip the tick off in the process. So, yeah, kind of gross. The tick is an unbelievable mechanism because it has a little gel that it squirts out while it's biting you to deaden the area so you don't feel it. I mean, it's like the ultimate delivery mechanism, you little bastards. Anyway, that's my update. I'm sticking to it, 
And uh, I want to thank you for for tuning in for another episode of For What It's Worth. I'm at home, so I'm back to my silky smooth microphones. So keep an eye out for more information about AG23. Sign up for the next trail race in your community, whatever distance that may be, and slug it out. Don't worry about New Orleans Saints. They were screwed from day one. They're going to be screwed for the rest of their existence in the NFL. That's just the way it is. Who dat? I love the Saints. Um, if you haven't made a book yet, take your time and realize you're going to have to put as much effort into your bookmaking as you have your photography, and don't get Lyme disease. That has been a public service announcement from yours truly. Thank you, and I will see you in the near future with the next episode of For What It's Worth.